it be wonderful to wake up on a morning uh, in the Lord's presence and know that you'll never have to obey 1 John 1, 9 ever again. <laughs> Pray for Pastor Mike. He is on a 24-hour journey home. And, uh, he's had a wonderful time co-teaching pastors all over the country of Zimbabwe for the last two weeks. So we're going to pray for his uh, safe arrival home. John chapter 12 uh, in our scriptures uh, this morning as we continue on in our study of this uh, book, um, this fourth uh, gospel. We look forward to a baptism as Pastor Steve mentioned this morning. Uh, we have some scheduled for October and December already. If you want to follow the Lord in obedience and baptism, know that the month of November is available as well. And um, who knows, maybe the Lord will give us the privilege of having at least one person baptized in all 12 months of a year, something that's never happened in Grace's history before. What a great blessing that would be um, to worship together um, in that ordinance. Who knows, Brandon and Katie might be parents by next Sunday. I was thinking about that today. I was wondering if it was going to be today, but not yet. Um, but anyways, keep praying for all of our folks with little ones on the way. By the way, every time uh, family's expecting, I want you to know I pray for your babies every Sunday morning. And I pray for you, moms. Uh, dads, you're in there too, but you know. <laughs> Just know that you're, you're prayed for, and, and we love you. Keep, uh, keep persevering well. Let's read our text, John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19, uh, this morning. On the next day, this would have been after the, the day of worship that Mary put on display uh, appropriately that Pastor Hobie preached on magnificently last week. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, this is the feast of the Passover, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also, the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said one to another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Military conquest parades have been around for millennia of human history. As a matter of fact, our, our oldest military parade known to our generations 
is really in Paris, France, every July 14th, right? The great Bastille Day parade where ever since 1880 they've been celebrating um, the protection of the unity of that great country and 2,000 fireworks displays are scheduled each July 14th throughout the country of France with the largest one uh, setting off at 11 p.m. at the Eiffel Tower each July 14th. The scriptures tell of military parades and military conquests. From the day of the earliest part of human history in scripture, these parades of Israel's kings were described to us. You can read those in First and Second Kings and and First First and Second Chronicles, from the early days of Scripture all the way to the days of the eschaton to come, the time to come, Revelation chapter six, where there's the meeting out of the seal judgments and the horsemen come to meet out the judgment of God, really the declaration of victory through judgment. Uh, therefore, they, they come on horses. And the horse in biblical times and in early human history was really um, the animal, really the beast of the battlefield. If a king arrived on a horse, if a military general would arrive on a horse that was either the declaration of war or when the battle was won there would be a parade and that same horse would be ridden upon in celebration of the victory almost three and a half years ago we were preaching through during the uh, 2020 second corinthians second corinthians chapter two paul alludes to a roman triumph he alludes to a Roman triumph, and we, we described that Roman triumph. As a matter of fact, a Jewish historian Josephus describes it in detail. Maybe you remember that description of this Roman triumph. It had to include a number of aspects in order for it to be an appropriate triumph. There had to be a commander-in-chief who was celebrating a tremendous victory that he and his field army had achieved. He would have had to lead that army to that victory. The region that was fought over must have been pacified and settled as, as Roman territory. The enemy must have lost at least 5,000 souls in one engagement. This victory must have been won over a foreign foe. This could not have been a victory that was celebrated in a civil war. The triumph would have been organized as a parade marching towards the capital where the emperor would finally be met with the general to be honored at the highest level. And, and this was the order of the parade. If you remember, the Senate and government officials were always at the front of the parade. Trumpeters sounded. And then the spoils taken from the land were next. When Titus conquered Jerusalem in AD 70, he brought through the streets of Rome the spoils from the holy city, including the golden candlesticks from the temple, the table of showbread from the same, and the golden trumpets uh, therein as well. Josephus goes on to, to tell us that uh, the next in line of this military parade uh, 
would be a white bull that would be offered and sacrificed at the end of the parade to the gods of Rome. The prisoners of war would follow, walking in shackles, being led ultimately to the Circus Maximus in Rome, where they would do battle with wild beasts and meet their death. So if they hadn't met it on the battlefield, they would face it inevitably there. Then there came the lictors, those who would beat the prisoners with their whips as they walked. And, and then the musicians would follow those beaten prisoners of war. And they would follow playing their music of triumph. Then the priests would follow next in line, swinging their censers of incense, bringing a sweet-smelling savor offered to the gods of Rome. Then there came the victorious general in his chariot pulled by four horses overlaid with purple regal cloth and strapped with golden palm leaves. In his hand, his right hand, he held an ivory scepter with a golden eagle on it. And then finally, last but not least, then came the army wearing all of their decorations, cheering over and over and over again, triumph! triumph, triumph. Thus would conclude the parade. Our text before us today is the explanation of the Christian's greatest parade of conquest to this point in spiritual history. The triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover we preach on this morning and this is the commencement of his, of his Passion Week the time of Christ's suffering. We've heard preached several superlative passages in recent weeks. The resurrection of Lazarus, the cementing of religious unbelief's desire to take the life of Jesus, and we also have learned in recent verses they also desired to take the life of Lazarus, who since his resurrection had caused quite a stir in and around Jerusalem. And last week, the magnificent worship model of Mary. And but today, we rehearse yet another immense and necessary occasion in the salvation history of all Christians. All four Gospels write of Christ's triumphal entry into the capital city of Jerusalem. When you combine all four Gospel writers' accounts, you'll note 14 different aspects of this triumphal entry. John only mentions six of the 14, and these six are what we'll examine uh, this morning together in three major ways. John writes to present Jesus as the Son of God. We know this, right? Again, in recent passages, he's the divine Son in human flesh that raises Lazarus from the dead, poses the greatest threat to religious unbelief, and the living word that demands the whole of our person in daily worship. But we must remember he's the Lamb of God that has also come to take away the sin of the world. John later writes that he's come to die for the sins of the whole world, even your sins and mine. He's come to make peace between you and God. 1 John 2, John writes within the same year possibly of writing his gospel, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. He's come to effect for us peace with God. 
For the greatest battlefield ever entered was that of Christ's condescension to our sin-cursed world in which we live. To obey the will of his Father unto the dying on the cross of Calvary for the atoning of our sin that we might have peace with God. No more enemies of his or sons of wrath, but friends and sons of God we would be. It's the triumphal entry of Jesus who enters this Passion Week as the Son of God in fulfillment of prophecy, as the one who will win the cosmic battle over sin and death through dying for it and really because of sin. This triumphal entry, as I studied this passage um, for quite some time, really to me is what uh, I would just label didn't find this label anywhere else in any other, but there's really an irony of faith through this whole uh, triumphal entry event, this, this grand parade of the Son of God who has come to endure passion, suffering uh, for the whole of our sin. You know, the final battle's not been fought yet. Typically in a triumphal entry of a ruler into a city, it's been fought and it's been won. But yet, Christ's final battle, his agony on the cross is four days forward from this particular Lord's Day or Sunday, if you will, in the Roman calendar of his triumphal entry day. Our Jesus enters Jerusalem not as a final victor, but as a lamb led to slaughter. Man seeks to enthrone him as, as liberator over Roman dominance. And Jesus comes to liberate man from a much greater threat to their eternal existence, which is their own sin. Religious ones seek to seize him and to kill him. Yet Jesus seeks to die only to rise again so that you and I can live and have life more abundantly in him. This triumphal entry will include those who cry Hosanna and beg for political temporary relief from Rome through Jesus, and yet Jesus comes to offer spiritual relief to their souls. There are those who seek to silence Jesus in this week of passion celebration, yet many who have believed on him, including those eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Lazarus, are found in our passage, continuing to testify of Christ's greatness, and they cannot be stopped. There will be many who believe in Jesus during the Passion Week. There will be many who will shout, Hosanna, who never believed. This is the Jewish Savior who will enter triumphantly and die the same in agony for the Jews' sins, for Greeks' sins, for Gentile sins of the whole world. In this week, man succeeds in doing exactly what God in his sovereignty had ordained for them to succeed. While mankind counts themselves most successful, God has won the day. The irony of faith can be explained on more levels from this passage, but 
suffice it to say that God's intentions in Christ here are not man's. Therefore, God's intentions are divine and eternal, and man's purpose of exaltation simply temporal and self-appeasing. So yes, John wrote to present Jesus as the divine Son of God so that you would believe on him and in believing you might have life through his name. So how is Jesus seen as the divine son of God in this passage in his triumphal entry this morning? Well, we'll see Jesus three ways. He is the divine son of promise, first of all. He is the divine son of promise who triumphantly enters the capital city of Jerusalem. He is the son of peace. He is the son of peace. And he is the son who has come to die for the souls of men. He is the son of promise, peace, and he is the lamb of God that's come to take away the sin of the world. He is the son of promise. All the synoptics record, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the excitement of Jesus' coming to Passover begins in Bethany among the people who were there to be eyewitnesses of Lazarus being raised from the dead. From there, Jesus instructs his men to go into a, a little town, probably Bethpage, and find there a donkey that would be prepared for him to ride upon in this triumphal entry to the city. The disciples do what they're told. The synoptics tell us. And there they find the donkey in its full, Matthew records. They use their outer garments to cover the animals so Jesus can ride upon one. And they return the animals to Jesus. John's account begins with people inside the city coming out to meet him. If you recall back to chapter 11, many Jews had entered the city for ritual purification before the time of the Passover. Since then, tens of thousands have entered the city in preparation for Passover celebration. This crowd now joins the throng coming from Bethany. And the streets are lined with massive, tumultuous crowds from the Bethany Road to the Mount of Olives all the way to the eastern entrance to the capital city. So against the will of the Sanhedrin, remember back to chapter 11, we saw from Pastor Steve's sermon, and with divine unstoppability, and by the way, that is a word. I thought it, and then when I typed it, I waited for my computer to catch it as a misspelling, and it wasn't. So with divine unstoppability, I love that word. Not because I, it was right, but I just love that word. Jesus continues his ride at the sound of literal shouts of thousands, tens upon thousands, hailing his arrival. The men and boys would cut the fronds of the palm trees and wave the branches in the air. Others would take the palm branches and place them in the street for Jesus to ride upon. If there were no branches to be found, then others would remove their outer garments and place them on the street in honor of the arrival of this promised one. This is, we know, the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 that John quotes for us here. 
John's accurate interpretation of Zechariah is fear not. Literally, all of God's people, all of Zion, all of Israel, all of Jerusalem, stop being afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. The palm branch was a symbol of Israel's righteousness as God's chosen people, Psalm 92 tells us. The palm was also used during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Lights, an expression of joy. Remember the Feast of Booths was celebrated in Thanksgiving to God for his protection from foreign dominance. The palm branch would be used for the same reason here. Whether laid in a street or waved by tens of thousands of souls during Passover, the palm branch was waved for their King Jesus who would triumph and have victory in their minds over this Roman domination. Do you remember the purpose also for the Feast of Dedication? This is not mentioned as one of the Mosaic feasts, but certainly described by the Apostle John as a feast that Jesus would attend. During the time between the Testaments, the Syrian conquer, conqueror Antiochus, remember him, had besieged and captured Jerusalem. The Jews quickly endeavored to be trained in guerrilla warfare and under the direction of the Maccabean leaders, the brothers Simon and Judas, they retook the city from the Syrians who had disgraced it. Jews were successful and ever since the retaking of Jerusalem under these Maccabean leaders, particularly Judas, they, they set up a celebration festival, the time of dedication, and, and that's really our modern day week of Hanukkah in our time. There was a triumph parade then. Judas the Maccabean entered the retaken city of Jerusalem to a parade of shouts and, and waving of palm branches. Those waving them were thankful. They were joyful. And they were celebrating victory. So it was the custom in both military and festival celebration for the Jews to use the palm branch. Ultimately, in this triumph, to have their promised king, the son of a promise, take his rightful place on his throne, his Davidic throne, and bring political freedom and autonomy back to God's chosen people. To the unbelieving Jew, Jesus was the son of promise. By this time, and in this way. But our text also describes him as the son of peace. Verse 13 John tells us that they kept on shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Historians would say this scene would be quite deafening. We'd have to remember that this is the time when Israel celebrates their release from captivity from Egypt. Passover in particular in remembrance is when the Jews in Egypt would apply, would be in remembrance of them applying the blood to the doorposts of their homes and in old Egypt, when they were enslaved there, the death angel came and he would pass over the killing of the Jewish firstborn son. Throughout all of Egypt, including the home of Pharaoh, the firstborn man-child was slain and in a relatively short time, God would use this event to bring release of his children from Egyptian enslavement. And just as God had provided peace for Israel from enslavement in Egypt, so now, with Christ their king, they would know peace from Rome. The talks would have been ongoing 
in the weeks before this Passover, as the popularity of Christ increased and came to its pinnacle, what is considered to be his greatest earthly miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the tomb. From small discussions in homes to larger discussions on the streets of Israel during the time of purification before Passover unto Passover the fame of Jesus would be spreading and the hope in him being the peace of Israel would soon become a reality to all those gathered there to celebrate they shouted Hosanna the verb form of Hosanna is simply save. It's a command. Save. Literally save right now, please. Save now, we pray. This is the shouted prayer of tens of thousands and most likely an antiphonal supplication. Remember, it's a prayer. Antiphonal supplication being volleyed by a vast choir of worshipers from one side of the road to the other as far as the eye could see and the ear could hear. One author translated it, Hosanna, this way, We beseech thee, O Jehovah, save us now. In addition, this crowd would have been very familiar with the sacred halal portion of songs from the Hebrew Psalter. These songs would be sung during the time of Passover as well. The particular text here that's mentioned is from Psalm 118, verse 25. Blessed is he who is coming in the name of our Lord. Hosanna, he is blessed. He's coming to bring us peace in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 is one of six of great praise songs from the Psalter called the Hallel. This song is messianic and the Jews knew it to be so. This song speaks of the stone which the builders rejected and which became the head of the corner. It's the psalm of the Hallel that is most quoted in the New Testament text of all other Hallel psalms as it's written of, by Luke in Acts 4.11 and Peter in 1 Peter 2.7. Clearly in the heart and mind of the Jews, the one coming in the name of the Lord on this donkey was the Messiah. He's the glorious national peacemaker and last but not least this great peacemaker king even arrives on the said donkey you see if a king arrives on a horse remember what we said before about a normal triumph he's come from physical war and conquest in the same way he would have arrived on the battlefield you see in the old testament even in the time of the judges when one judge happened to rule in peace, they and their leaders would ride on donkeys. The donkey was an animal symbol of peace. This king would have no need to arrive on a horse. The Jews knew this. It's fascinating. Which would have been a cultural animal of war, as we've said. He was the king who healed the lame. He he healed the blind, the mute, the leper. He'd raised Lazarus from the grave. This king had the power to just declare victory and bring peace from the very word of his mouth. Amen. 
So yes, to unbelieving Israel, Jesus is not just the king of promise who's come. He's the king of peace. He's the king of peace. But we know that Jesus is the son of God and he's for, can I say this? He's towards the souls of people. He's the son of God who's to be believed upon so that all might truly have understanding of life in his name. The Lord Jesus demonstrates here in all four gospel accounts a, a divine patience towards those who had believed in him and still towards those who had, who had not. Look at verse 16. Consider the patience Jesus had for his own disciples who are simply caught up in the uproarious events of this triumphal entry. John mentions this. I don't believe the other three accounts do. And of course, he's writing some 60 years later from more of a 50,000 foot view. And he writes of himself here in verse 16. These things the disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. The Lord Jesus had loved his disciples with everlasting love. And in this love, they're secure. The grace of God compels them to persevere. No matter how slow they process his life and his teachings. John is quick to remind us that Jesus is patient. Even with those of his own who may be slow growers, but yet by the grace of God, growing still. Remember chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, when the religious teachers asked Jesus for a sign to prove who he was. Clear back in the early of our study. And Jesus said, I'll give you a sign. This temple, right? I will destroy it in three days. In one day, in three days, raise it again. And the sign there for them was a prophecy of his resurrection to come. It even says clear back there in chapter 2 that when the disciples heard him say that, they, they did not really discern the use of that metaphor until when? Until after Jesus had actually raised himself from the dead. God is so patient with our spiritual growth, isn't he? Our growth in Christ's likeness is not merely a public show of obedience to God. It is the divine outworking by the grace of God of the ever so slow and yet consistent development of our renewed heart and mind into and towards Christ's likeness. Maybe be as patient with each other as Jesus has been with us. But God is not slow concerning his promise, as Peter records for us. He's not willing that any perish, but that all should come to repentance. And though Jesus is the promised one of Zechariah's word of prophetic promise, though he's the Messiah who brings peace, he is the Prince of Peace. Isaiah told us that, didn't he? In Isaiah 9:6. This time of his earthly kingdom is not yet come. 
during his week of passion. On this Passover Sunday, Jesus comes as the one who brings the promise of salvation, not political freedom. Salvation from sin. He's the one that comes as the son of peace offered to the human heart. He's to be praised for being the slain, suffering servant of God before the foundation of the world was established. He is the salvation, salvific son of promise and peace towards the sons of men before he is the national king of their promise and peace in his 1,000 year reign on little reign on earth yet to come. His heart as the Son of God is so that all might believe and have eternal life through his name. We know this. And Luke writes, Luke who writes to present Jesus as the Son of Man in his account of the triumphal entry tells us of Jesus pausing short of the city and looking upon her. And he weeps. Go back with me to Luke 19. Let's look at a brief portion of Luke's account of the triumphal entry. Beginning in verse 41. One of 14 aspects recorded of all four. Luke writes, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Now folks, this isn't, um, this word for weep is very similar to the word that Jesus, is used of Jesus at Lazarus' tomb. Um, this would have been Jesus Commencing on the parade out of Bethany, coming along the Bethany Road, possibly to the hillside of the Mount of Olives. And literally, when, he, when Jerusalem comes in view, for him, he stops. Now, think of this. The explosion of praise of Hosanna and the repeating of the prophecy of Zechariah 9 is happening all during this time. It never, it, stop, it starts as he commences out of Bethany and it doesn't stop until he's inside the city gates. When the city comes in view for Jesus, he stops. Probably pretty noticeable. And he wails. Another irony of faith, shouts of joy, and our soon-to-be suffering Savior, wailing in tears. Why? I think you know why. If you know your Bibles well, you know why. He sees the condition of the hearts of these beloved countrymen. He knows many have been born again, but the majority still seek mere political aspirations. They're religious nationalists. They don't see Jesus as the Son of God who came with salvation, promise, and spiritual peace offered to their hearts. How now Jesus, pressed of his own will to obey the Father, approaches the city with a heart to be slaughtered for those who still reject him as the son of God. 
and for their sin. There's something else that I think it's good for us to know. For centuries of time, the Mosaic community, by the written hand of Moses and the civic code or the civil code of the Mosaic law, would allow for a very decent and orderly entrance of all nations into the Mosaic community. So by the time Christ reaches his 33rd year of celebrating the Passover, either as a family or as an individual, he's coming upon a city that really has among her all tribes, all tongues, all nations as converted, unsaved religious Jews. Just kind of reminds me what John wrote later a few months from his gospel in 1 John chapter 2 that Jesus came to die for our sins and the sins of what? The whole world. That's what's before him. That's what he sees. That's why he weeps. So with this divine perspective, he enters the city to fulfill the will of his Father who sent him. There are those who believe, engaged in doing the will of his Father too. We see that in verse 17 and 18 that we've already read, the people who were with him, especially those that would become born again at the raising of Lazarus from the tomb. It says here, they continued to testify about him. And this is just a condition of our world as we know it today. Many exist in religious unbelief, still wanting political freedom as the fulfillment of their greatest need, and yet there's one still testifying who have believed that ultimate true freedom is certainly not political. It's spiritual, isn't it? Man's greatest need is forgiveness. And that's found in Jesus Christ alone, which brings us back to our opening illustration of our Roman triumph in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says there in that text that we are the triumph of God in Christ Jesus. We are the sweet-smelling savor in our time of the church of life unto life and, and death unto death. These loyal souls in Jerusalem on this triumphal entry day are really the foreshadowing of those who would be part of the commissioning of the church less than 50 days forward from Christ's entrance into Jerusalem. Their number could not be stopped, John says. The grammar here teaches us that. They just kept testifying. No one could quiet them. So while the hosannas are going up from the religious unbelief, the testimony of Jesus Christ is being shouted from the lips of those who have believed and known his salvation promise and his forgiveness. What a noisy day. <laughs> but they had quite an influence, the passage tells us. In 
verse 19 tells us that the push towards the reception of Jesus as promised king and peace giver was so overwhelming that the religious unbelief began turning on themselves. The more orthodox, if you will, the more vocal begin to attack those who are less staunch in their Judaism. As they looked around, all they could see were unbelieving Jews, multinational converted to Judaism, souls, and saved by faith alone, Jews and Greeks, flooding out of the city, flooding from Bethany, converging together in this unified chorus of Hosanna, literally leaving the religious Jews in the city empty by themselves. And there they turn on each other. What a beautiful company to keep. And yet they remained determined to find him in the city once he came. And they would be successful just four days later, arresting, illegally trying, crucifying, and burying this celebrated promise, peace giver, who loved the souls of men. On this day, we're left with Jesus' perspective of those who are in our world yet with us. He's come that all might believe that he's the son of God and believing they may have life through his name. So I would ask you today, are, are you an active part of God's triumph? Are you that sweet smelling savor of life unto life and death unto death? Do you align yourself with or would you be glad to be on the party of those testifying of Jesus, the one who resurrected Lazarus from the tomb who gave literal physical life to a physically dead body and who's certainly able to give life to your dead soul? Would you align with them today? Would you be comfortable in their company? I know for the faithful here at Grace Church of Mentor, you are comfortable among the company of those whose testimony of Jesus Christ as the Son of God cannot be stopped. You know, when I get a new birth announcement through my email that someone's been born again, you know the words that come to my mind? Triumph! 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 God always wins. And Jesus wins by obedience. As he enters his week of passion. To fulfill the will of his father. To fulfill prophecy of Isaiah 53. To be a lamb led before a slaughterer's. the sacrifice of our own sin. We're going to hear a baptism now from 
a soul that was really by the Spirit of God instructed that they were merely in religious unbelief and God woke her soul up allowed her to see who Jesus really is her name went out recently to you in a new birth announcement and at her testimony today we cry triumph 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 can you have a face and a name you say Pastor Tim you always talk about this evangelism stuff well not always but a lot why are you all here anyway? Why are you all here anyway? If God's salvation work in this dispensation was done, we would be out of here. It's not done yet. Who's seated next to you, in front of you, behind you? Maybe one that is yet to believe. Who in your home, your workplace, your neighborhood? Your place of exercise is yet to believe. So many more things to say. But let's make sure that we're doing our best to prayerfully and actively enjoy the parade of God's salvation triumph. Father in heaven, we, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to examine one of the final greatest events in our salvation history. We thank you by your Spirit's inspiration that we have recorded for us in full detail by all four gospel writers this event for our learning. pray we take with it its necessary application as we seek to continue to join in this victory parade as we celebrate the son of salvation promise and the son of salvation peace as we seek to pursue the souls, the people that our Savior came to die for that we might be that savor of life, that sweet-smelling savor of life unto life and death unto death. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.